It was in the Old Testament book of Numbers that we see that blessing pronounced over God's people. And I pray today that it has been pronounced over you and well-received, that you would recognize that God is for you. Somebody today needed to hear that message, that God would indeed make his face to shine upon you. Thank you, Brother Wes, and for our orchestra and choir leading us today in worship. I invite your attention to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're looking at the very end of the book, and I've got to say this. It's pretty hard to believe that we're here. We come today to the very last two verses of the very last chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to miss it. Kind of like an old friend, this Koheleth, the preacher, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, the one who gathers knowledge together, has really invested in my life as I've invested time in his word. I don't know about you, but I've enjoyed spending some time with this preacher. Here is the smartest man on the face of the earth, and he sets out to discover the meaning of life. He sets out to search out what life is all about, and then he reports back to us. He shares that search with us. I've got to tell you, the book of Ecclesiastes has stretched me. It has challenged me. I don't know about you, but it's clarified some perspective for me about various things that I consider in life. It strengthened my faith. And now I want to do something today that's a little bit different. I want us to take just a few minutes before we get to our text of the day, and I want to do sort of a jet sweep back through the book. I want to walk back through and give you sort of some handles, if you will, to hang on, and here's why. Everybody look this way. I want you to return to the book of Ecclesiastes again and again. I want you to go back to it and you say, why, Pastor? Why do we need to stay there? Well, I told you at the beginning of this sermon series back in August that this may very well be the single best evangelistic track in all of the world. Obviously, the book of John is an incredible evangelistic track. John said, I've written these things that you know that Jesus is the Son of God and knowing that you would believe in him and in believing you'd be saved. But the book of Ecclesiastes gives us a unique perspective on life. I mean, here is the wealthiest, wisest man in the earth, and he has a vantage point that none of us have. And there are people all around us that are searching for the meaning of life. They're searching for purpose and for hope. And Solomon and all of his wealth and all of his wisdom had an incredible vantage point. Israel experienced 40 years of peace while he was leading the nation. It expanded greatly. Leaders from all around the world would come to see the magnificence of the kingdom of Israel under Solomon's reign. Solomon had all of the wealth, all of the wisdom, all of the life, all of life's pleasures at his fingertips, all the things that you can imagine. We said early on that if Solomon was a leader today, he would have it all. He would have houses and he would have cars. He would have designer suits and Rolexes. We would see in Solomon's life a man that would eat breakfast in New York and then a private jet would escort him to dinner in Europe. He would be a guy that everybody would, would envy and want to emulate. He was just an incredible, incredible character in life. 
But God gave him wisdom because he asked for wisdom. And God gave him wealth because he didn't ask for other things. He asked for biblical insight, for wisdom in his life. And in doing so, God blessed him greatly. And so I can take this book to a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate, and I can say, you know what? I know a guy that has tried just about everything under the sun, and he said all of it was empty. He said all of it was vanity and meaningless. His unique position to undertake these investigations really should cause us to pause and consider it. Solomon had authority to speak on this subject. Again, nobody knew what Solomon knew. He could pursue life to the fullest and then report back to us. And that's exactly what he's done. So church family, here's what I wanna do. I wanna lay out the course of the day. I want us to pray together. I want us to thank God for this beautiful text that he has preserved for us. I want to ask that he would give to us insight as we consider the conclusion of the matter today. And then I want us to wrap up our time together in Ecclesiastes. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this wise, wise word. Thank you, Lord, that the answers to life are not found in the wisdom of men. Lord, no human institution can give us the key to living. It must come from your loving hand. And that's what we've experienced in the book of Ecclesiastes. God, oftentimes, through pain and sorrow, as we work our way toward these great answers, we're moved to a place of needing to trust you more. Guide us now. Guard us now. Lord, help us as a a people to learn how to wait and learn and be attentive. Help us today, God, to remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you came in and got a listening guide, I hope you'll turn your attention there because I've given you just some some singular thoughts that will serve as handles for the book of Ecclesiastes. I want us to retrace our steps. We began back in August talking about the, the, the notion that everything under the sun is vanity. He started out with what we'll call a critique of life. He he gave a very a somber picture that nothing new is under the sun, that life is almost like a machine that just continues to run over and over again, that the rivers come and they flow and they go back and then they come again, that the cycle of water just kind of moves and the winds move from the east and the south and the north and the west, that life just continues to revolve. Seasons change and days change and there's nothing new under the sun and he critiques it he says it's frustrating to look at everything is vanity everything is meaningless and it doesn't mean that it has no meaning it just means that it's hard to grasp if you'll remember if you've been with us for any time the Hebrew word that we use is hevel and it means smoke or a mist he's saying life is hevel it's hard to see through and it's impossible to grasp and it's disorienting but it's enchanting and beautiful and mesmerizing too, but his critique is all of this is meaningless. It's frustrating. And that leads him to a unique place. He's saying that man cannot exist apart from God. And what he ultimately comes to at the end of chapter two is this, that anything good that comes in your life comes from the hand of God. That would be a good place for us to nod and say amen. 
In your life, it is a struggle. Maybe you have experienced this same search, but he searches for us. And as we search vicariously through this preacher, this wealthy, wise man, he says to us, life under the sun is meaningless. And then he moves on in chapter three and he talks about a certain crisis. It's a crisis of faith. And you know this passage well. We know this probably better than any other portion of the text. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. There's a time to build. There's a time to tear down. And here's the crisis. It is hard to have faith when life comes at us with so many different angles. This crisis of faith is basically saying this, life is complex. Would anybody agree with that statement here today? Life is a challenge. Life is complex, but God has a plan. And this is where the crisis comes in. If there is a time to be born and a time to die, I don't understand when those times are, but you need to see he's not saying we need to discover what those times are and figure it out. What he's saying is that we need to understand that God has appointed those times, that God knows those times. You mean I'm to trust God and he may take away, that people may die, that times may be difficult, there may be an actual time, a season, a place for me to mourn? Yes. And the preacher comes to the place of helping us to understand this crisis of faith with a grander perspective. And the perspective is this, God has a plan all along. God seeks after what already has been. Let me illustrate it this way. Romeo and Juliet die at the end of the play. I guess I should have said spoiler alert. Most of you know that, right? But that was in the heart and in the mind of William Shakespeare from the beginning. God is not caught off guard by a time to be born or a time to die. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And some of you walked into this place and you're on that journey. You're on a search. We've got college students that are being uh, challenged and they're expanding their thinking into patterns they've never thought before. But as you look, don't look just under the sun. Recognize that God has a bigger picture. There's a greater purpose, and God has a plan. And just because you can't figure out the times or the seasons doesn't mean you need to stay in a crisis of faith. You can trust God in this season. God has a plan. That's a significant thing. As you think about this idea that God sees the end from the beginning, aren't you thankful for that? Does it bring you any manner of comfort that God already knows where things are headed? That lesson, uh, that should lessen the crisis for us. Now, we move forward into chapter four and chapter four continues the crisis. And there's a different crisis. We become enamored with some conflicts in life. And here's the crisis in chapter four. How can I trust God when there's oppression and injustice how can I trust God in the frustrating nature of life when there is heartbreak under wicked rulers? I mean, there are wicked people that flourish. God, that doesn't make sense. How can I trust you? So don't lose sight of what I'm doing here. I hope that you'll walk away later. You'll ponder these things and you'll say, hold on, this makes sense. As I read the book in totality, he starts out with a critique and he says, life is so, so complicated. It's a struggle to understand. It's meaningless. And then there's a crisis. Can I really trust God in the middle of this? In the middle of oppression? In the middle of heartache? In the middle of wickedness flourishing and good people seemingly suffering. Those conflicts are going to lead him to some warnings. 
and these warnings he shares with us in chapter five. But because the word warnings doesn't start with the letter C, we'll call them something else. How about that? We'll call them cautions. I saw a t-shirt this week and it was about the American Association Against Alliteration Abuse. Some of you will get that later. Preachers are bad, bad about alliteration. And I hope that you would see that these C's would cause you to ponder. But as we look at these cautions, he cautions us very pointedly out of what we have just seen. And the cautions that he gives to us are very important for us to understand. He says, if you approach God, watch your tone. If you approach God, be very, very careful. He says, those that are going to worship, you need to be sensitive to what is happening here. Don't go to God with this tone of voice with impertinence. Don't go arrogantly or rudely. Don't go to God just to mouth off. You go to God to listen. You say, I don't understand. I'm in a crisis of faith. How can I trust God in a time to born and a time to die? How can I trust God in the midst of injustice? How can I trust God in the midst of chaos in the culture around me? And he says, you can go to God and ask him, but you better ask nice. And what he's saying is you better ask with a sense of faith, not a sense of accusation. Don't go to the Lord and spout off what you don't know. Because you don't know what you don't know, and neither do I. Now, as we consider that idea, he cautions us, and he then leads us to a place of some corrections. And these corrections are very, very helpful, mainly corrections on our perspective. We began to learn, and hopefully you go back to this, and I probably had as much response from those couple of sermons as any other, but God began to show us through the writer of Ecclesiastes that wealth and ease and good times can be overrated. They can lead us to a false sense of security. We also learned in this new perspective that at times, bad times and pain and struggle can be healthy. They can be underrated because they can lead us to God. You know, we cannot have real life, lasting life, if we don't enjoy fellowship with God. And so the writer tells us, be humble, be content, knowing that God knows things that you don't know, can I just tell you something that may liberate some of you today? You don't have to know everything. I don't have to know everything. What I do have to know is who knows everything. The one that knows everything, I trust him. And I go to him with a sense of perspective. Now, we then zeroed in on what we've called counsels. He gives us some lessons we started in about chapter six and move almost to the end of the book. And there were several of them. We said, always do, the, <coughs> excuse me, always do the right thing. That you would give yourself to doing the right thing, even when it seems better to do otherwise. That you would always enjoy right now. Let me just go on this one for a moment. I love the fact that he says, enjoy your life. I love the fact that he says, I think it's somewhere there in the Hebrew. It says, drink good coffee. Eat good food, take long naps, enjoy your friends, eat the steak, go on the vacation, enjoy the beach, enjoy the mountains. He says, enjoy life. Enjoy it because it came from the hand of God and he counsels us to enjoy those things and not to get so caught up with all of the worries of triviality, but just to enjoy the blessings of God. Can I get an amen? I mean, eat the rocky road. Eat that ice cream. Get the second dessert. Now, don't be foolish. I, I, I thought I was going to get an amen on that one. God says to us very pointedly, 
in these counsels of the preacher, enjoy life. It's fleeting, it's uncertain, it's risky, but you can enjoy it. He also said to have poise. If you remember, we use the word pose. It is a, a, a sense that when things change around you, you don't change, that you stay composed. It's the shortstop that makes an error. If he gets in his head that he can't do it, then he's gonna continue to make errors. But if he'll shake it off, get right back into position and make the next play in our lives, when life rattles us, stay poised. Stay in a position of trusting the Lord. Now, as we do that, he goes on to tell us that we need to be bold. Forge ahead and don't wait. Do you remember just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this notion of navigating life boldly, that we would not waste our lives waiting for the perfect opportunity, but we would take calculated wise risks. Holy risk. I heard somebody last week struggling with this. In fact, I had a couple of people that said, you know, I've seen people that have said, I'm finally gonna pull the trigger. My pastor told me that I should just take risk. Hear me. Taking those risks mean that you follow the Lord. Do you remember my example? When I have a wife that comes into my office and says, I'm praying about leaving my husband. I can give you clear direction on the will of God. That ain't it. You need to follow God. Now, as we talked about that and unpacked it, if you didn't hear that sermon, you can go back and listen to it. But taking risk doesn't mean that we take God for granted or out of the equation. But those counsels were powerful. Do right, enjoy life, be bold, don't wait. And as we move through those, we would see in the very first half of the last chapter a creed. That's the next thing that you'll see. A creed to live by, God's word is our standard. You know, as we think about living our lives by God's word, it is a goad that keeps us in the road. It is a nail that keeps us secure. You can read that in those texts and begin to see that God's counsel illumines our lives. And life is uncertain at times, and life is painful at times, and yet we can take those wise, calculated steps in following the Lord. Marriage can be painful and there are no guarantees. Your spouse can die or can get sick or can face trouble, get married anyway. Kids can bring challenges. They can rebel, have kids anyway. Jobs can be painful, but get a job. Start young, don't wait, and listen to the word of God. Don't trust what human beings say. Don't trust what your friend's opinion says. Don't trust what Twitter tells you or social media. Trust the Lord. Weigh everything else out by that filter. Now, I've done in 11 minutes what it took us 13 weeks to do. Some of you say, Pastor, pay attention. We just walked through the book of Ecclesiastes very quickly. And I sincerely hope that you would take those notes and you would begin to look at it. As we look at life, it's a struggle and it leads to crisis, but we can come to God and experience his direction and his wisdom and his counsel on how to live. And he's given us a tool to do it, his word. And that brings us to today. And the word for today is conclusion. We come to the conclusion. That was probably one of the longest introductions you've ever heard me give. But as we come to the place of this text, we're gonna look at two verses. Only two, the last two. And as we look at these last two verses, we see the conclusion of the matter. I wanna invite you very quickly, if you wouldn't mind, to stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. As we read Ecclesiastes 12, 
verse 13 and 14. The writer says this, that's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. You may be seated, and may God add blessing to the reading and understanding to the reading of his word. This is his final report. He's done all of the searching, all of the review. He's gone out and gathered all of the information, and he comes to the final place of conclusion and says, let me submit my report. Let me give you the document that tells you what life is all about. This is the meaning of life. And he starts out by saying, fear God. Write that down, fear God. And I want us to talk about that for a moment because so many of us live without any practical fear of God. We don't live in this place of reverence for his position. And I want you to understand it because it's a deep, deep thought. It's not just not being afraid of God. Some people have said that, oh, the fear of the Lord is not that you're afraid of God. It may be. It may very well be that some of you need to tremble. It may very well be that some of us need to come to the place and see him for who he is. I believe that God shows us in Scripture really three nuanced ideas when it comes to fear. The first one simply can be this idea of terror, that there's a sense of terror over something that has frightened me, a frightening situation, an enemy at the door. And in the Old Testament, we see the word fear used that way over and over again. People literally had their knees knocking. They were frightened. They were scared. Do you remember the king of Babylon when God wrote on the wall? It says that he was disjointed at his knees. He literally shook in fear and terror and horror. That is one of the applications for the word fear. It also can mean respect, much like a servant respects or fears his master and serves him faithfully. Are there people in your life that you admire? Heroes of yours that you look up to, you enjoy spending time with, you're drawn to, you want their approval and their affirmation, you want them to be well pleased with how you live? That's one of the ways that fear is described in the Bible. So it can be terror or it can be respect. The third way that we see it and most often used, it denotes reverence or awe. A person feels in the presence of greatness. It's Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He was overwhelmed with the radiance of God. He was overwhelmed with the majesty of God. And as we see in that overwhelmed state of awe and wonder, it is a sense of fear, a holy trembling. And the fear of the Lord is a combination of all three of those. I hope that you've jotted those words down, terror, respect, and reverence. Let me define it for you this way. I, I began to try to ask myself, I mean, we take common things often. I mean, we, we talk about holiness, but we really often struggle to define it or worship. Well, the fear of the Lord is something that we say often, but what is it? And I wrote down these words, the fear of the Lord is the continual awareness of the presence of God, that our loving heavenly father, who is all powerful and perfectly holy, is watching and evaluating everything we think, say, and do. 
I don't know which of those three nuanced approaches that that brings to your heart. It may bring you terror to think that God saw everything that you did this week. God knows everything that you thought this week, every intention of our hearts this week. And he doesn't operate out of guilt. The Bible says that it's his loving kindness that leads us to repent. But there is a place of conviction when we recognize God is watching, God is there, God does see. And when we understand that, we begin to see in his all-powerful character and his perfectly holy disposition, we understand that as he knows all things, it's like Jesus speaking to the seven churches in Revelation. He says, I know your works. Over and over again, I know your works. Nothing escapes his attention. Church family, don't run past this. Who is it that we're talking about? Who is this king of glory? He's the creator of all things. He's the designer of life and how it should be. This God that we serve is the standard and the source of truth. He doesn't follow truth. He is truth. He's the redeemer that brings us back to himself. He is the soon coming conquering king. And we consider the radiance and the power and the glory and the majesty of Jesus. We should be overwhelmed with a sense of the fear of the Lord. It may bring terror. It may bring such an utter sense of respect. You're serving faithfully. He is your master. And out of love, you want to serve him more. It may bring a sense of awe and wonder where you just are rendered speechless. There was an incredible story about a, a, a young man. I read it in a memoir. And when he was a little boy, his name was John. And John was with his father after World War II, and they were in occupied Germany. And he was playing there in the, the living room as his dad was walking around and having meetings with some advisors. Evidently, it, his dad was a, an important figure, but to his little boy, to John, he was just dad. And he was playing, and as he was playing, dad came over and patted him on the head and he walked toward the balcony and they drew back the drapes and his father walked out onto the balcony and John said in his memoirs these words. He said, I remember vividly seeing, being struck by thousands of men snapping to attention. Their heels clicked in a thunderous crescendo as my father ascended that place. The little boy's first name was John. His last name was Eisenhower. His father, Dwight D. Eisenhower, stood before those people and they drew to attention. And he said in his memoir something powerful. He said, I knew that day that my father was much, much more than just my father. If you have gotten comfortable with holiness and you come to the place of saying, God's just my best friend and it's a sentimental sense, maybe you need to get a new fresh glimpse of the, his power and of his majesty and his glory and discover that the fear of the Lord is the final conclusion of the matter, that to fear God is the meaning of life. That's where he comes. He said, this is the whole story. Here's my report, fear God. That ought to bring us to a place of understanding clearly with awe and respect. Listen to the words of Peter. I want to put them on the screen. Since you call on a father who judges every person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. That's powerful. 
Several years ago, I was traveling on a, a mission trip to South Asia. It was my very first time to go to a couple of the nations of South Asia. And I've got to tell you, I was pretty nervous. The culture was radically different. The city was dirty. There were fires that were burning, and there was trash in the streets, and there was crime, and there was poverty, and it was a challenging thing. There was a language barrier that I obviously did not have any uh, reference to, to uh, cross. And we had with us a young man named Puchan. And Puchan was our translator. But more than that, he was our mediator to an alien culture. It was very, very different than my own. It was not quite like Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And as I went there, I was comforted by his presence. <laughs> Every time he was with me, I could talk to a shop owner or I could talk to someone on the street through his translation. If he was in earshot or in eyesight, I was at peace. There were a couple of times that he was nowhere to be found. We got separated. I'm standing in the middle of a sea of humanity, a throng of people, and I freaked out. I trembled. I was terror-stricken. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't ask for help. I couldn't ask for where Bujam was. It did not have any uh, bearing of or semblance to anything familiar. And I was so concerned about that. I revered him in such a way because when he was near me, I was good. And when I got away from him, I was in chaos. It was safe to be next to Bujam. Can I just tell you this? It's that way with God. It is safe to be near him. As long as he is nearby, we're okay. But if we get away from him, our lives move into chaos. That's the way you should feel about God. When you get any distance from him, you need to tremble because you and reality are not in keeping. Fear God and let that fear not cause you to shrink back and hide, but to run to him. The second thing that he says in this report, fear God is first, but keep his commands. Keep his commands. We're talking about nothing more, nothing less than obedience. He is a worthy, worthy deity. One writer said this way, a nail-pierced deity who dies for his creation is a God that is to be obeyed and feared. You see, I give up my wisdom for his wisdom. I give up my will for his will. I give up my purpose for his purpose. And that's what the writer is saying, that our lives, if they're going to actually express genuine purpose and experience the meaning of life, then we would surrender to him. My life becomes his life. His life becomes mine. My life then is to glorify God. God doesn't want to just patch up your pagan existence, your fleshly life with divine duct tape. He's not interested in just making you a little better. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. You need to turn over a new life. Thank you. That's what we need. I needed that. I look back at myself and say, there was nothing good in Scott Hanbury. And when Jesus Christ met me, he changed everything. And the meaning of life is this, that we would keep his commandments, resolving to say, I will obey his word. Really and truly, there's only two basic fundamental commands. Love God and love people. And as we do those two things, Jesus said all of the law and all of the prophets hang on those two. That covers pretty much everything. Oh, that we would come to the place of loving God with our heart and our soul and our mind. 
to obey him, to follow him, to keep the commandments. That's what it means to fear God. Now, look back at verse 13 with me for a moment. Very, very quickly. There's a unique phrase right in the middle. This is, say it with me. It's on the screen. Let's say the whole thing. This is everyone's duty. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to see that Ecclesiastes 12, 13 is the Westminster Confession of the Old Testament. The, the catechism question is, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. Nothing is independent from God. What does it say? This is whose duty? Everyone. This is the pastor's duty, right? Yes, it is, but it's yours too. That was a trick question. I wanted you to say, no, it's everybody. It is, it's everybody's duty. You and I have an obligation before the God, and here's why. Listen to me, this is foundational. If we are ever independent from God, we leave a vacuum, and something will fill that vacuum. You know why nature abhors a vacuum? There is nothing in creation that was ever existed to be independent from God. Not a person, not a place, not a thing, not a molecule, nothing. I love it. It was Abraham Kuyper who said this in the 1800s. I want you to read this quote with me. There is not, read it with me. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. Can you see the ruler of the universe in power and splendor and glory pointing at everything there is, every star and every starfish, every molecule, every molehill, every mountain, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, mine. I created it. I have redeemed it. And it is not to be independent from me. But when we find ourselves in independence from God, our lives melt off into chaos. And that's what the preacher is telling us here today. You want to know the meaning of life? Fear God and keep his commands because that is everybody's duty. Every single one of us are called to do that, dependent on God. This hits home for me. Listen. As God says, everything is mine, that means he points and says, this home is mine. This family is mine. The church is mine. And you take that farther, morality, gender. What else do we want to consider here? Government, marriage, sexuality, education, business, science, all of them totally and wholly dependent on God. You ought to invest your time learning what God thinks and then you can learn other things because all of that wisdom without God is meaningless. So important for us to see. Those of you that have been involved in any of our evangelistic outreach are probably familiar with a little track we use called Three Circles. And we explain it this way, that brokenness in life is experienced because God's design is beautiful, but man ran away from God's design. In you, in your life and in my life, when we run away from God's design, it always leads us to brokenness. So whenever something is independent from God, it leaves a vacuum. Let me ask you this. If it's not the truth of God that fills something, what do you think it will be? The lies of Satan. You take God out of schools and guess what? Satan 
will fill it. You take God out of marriage, and guess what? Satan has an alternative. You take God out of his design for manhood and womanhood, and Satan will present an alternative there. He will always fill the vacuum. Adam and Eve rejected the sovereignty of God, and they became subservient to the devil. I mean, think about God's beautiful plan, the gift of life, the gift of eternal life. And what does death, uh, what does uh, sin bring but death? Darkness and light. And, and here's the thing. I think this is why Solomon would say to us that the conclusion of the matter and wisdom in this world really boils down to this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? There's a choice to make. God has given to us a measure of freedom. We're not sovereign over our lives. God is over it all. But you and I have moral capacity and a will to choose. And I'll just say this. It's amazing to me to think about. And I thought about this a lot this week. It's amazing for me to think about that man has the capacity to be Mother Teresa or Jeffrey Dahmer. If you don't know who they are, Google them later. But, but we can literally be a picture of heaven come down or hell on earth. We can be godly or godless. And it depends on where you come to this place of the meaning of life. Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments. It's interesting to me. Satan came to Adam and Eve with a promise of good and he painted God in a bad light. He said, God doesn't, um, God's keeping something from you. And then he called God an out and out liar. God said, you shall surely die. And Satan said, you shall not surely die. It's fascinating to me. If you think about this idea, he paints God as untruthful and as bad. And the world has believed that. Not long ago, Dr. Jamie Dew came and he preached. And he said, you realize that years ago, they thought we were irrational. I mean, you believe in talking serpents and you believe in angels and demons and things that we can't prove. Well, that was 20 years ago, irrational, and now they think we're bad. They think that we're evil. The world is coming more and more to this place of being hostile toward our faith, and that is Satan filling that vacuum where we've said we will live independently from God. Let me just close it up with illustrating it this way. Let's just suppose that you're an astronaut. You went to MIT. You are an actual rocket scientist. You have all of the education, all of the intellect, all of the training, all of the knowledge, and you go up into space and you're at the space station and you're going on a, a space walk. Well, on a space walk, your education and your experience and your intellect are not the most important tools in your gear. You know what the most important tool is in your gear? The tether. If you're not strapped to the mothership, you're toast. You're going to die. You're going to float off into an existence apart from any purpose and security that you could have. If you get cut loose, it's over. The most important thing about man, the most important thing is knowing Jesus Christ. And the Bible says very pointedly, you want to know the meaning of life? Fear God. Keep his commandments. Now, there's one last place we have to go. I would add this, trust his word. I, I didn't preach verses one through 12 last week. We, we've done more of a summary of the whole book, but I want you to see this. I, I've been through seasons in my life where I struggled. 
I've gone through seasons of depression and heartache and difficulty. And one in particular, I went through a very, very dark valley. In the middle of that, God's word spoke to me, John 14, where he says, let not your heart be troubled. And you say, well, that's an encouraging thing. But the, the, the part that encouraged me may be surprising to you. It was the let not. God, you mean to tell me that I have a choice in the matter? Yes. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Why? And he goes on and gives the reason and the remedy. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he gives hope. He says, I'm gonna go and prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You need to realize that that's the power of the word. The power of the word is that we understand what life is actually about. Not just life under the sun. Not just geometry and geology. Not just math and science and physics and relationships and making up our own sense of right and wrong. But God gives clear direction and his word is powerful for us. And we begin to understand if you read verses one through 12, you'll see that it's all gathered by the heart of a shepherd. We recognize that all we like sheep have gone astray and this shepherd gives to us clarity of where we should go. Now verse 14, it says this, God will judge us for everything that we do, including the secret things, whether good or bad. And so what I'm saying today is this. If you're gonna trust his word, trust all of it. Don't pick and choose what you like. Christians, hear me. Our sin was already judged at the cross. We will one day stand before the bema seat of judgment. I simply go back to that verse, if you will, just for a moment. Verse 14, God will judge us for everything we do. Every word that we spoke, every thought that we thought, God will judge those. We will not be judged for condemnation and for punishment. That happened at the cross. We will be judged for rewards in heaven. And then Christ will return and there'll be another judgment, the judgment of this present world. And then at the end of the kingdom, there is in the book of Revelation, a judgment that's called the great white throne. And at that time, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into outer darkness. They will be separated from God and light and love forever. And if you believe the Bible, you got to read and believe it all. You see, he says, fear God and keep his commandments and trust his word. And his word is for us a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. Some of you have walked around in darkness struggling and you say, pastor, I just can't get traction in life. Maybe it's because you're living under the sun and you need to look up. And you can't do that on your own. I've said this over and over again in this series. Trying to discern spiritual things from our human perspective is like a mole looking for constellations. We don't have the capacity. Oh, but today, maybe God has quickened your heart. Maybe today you have heard from him and he is resonating in your spirit and you're saying yes to Jesus in your mind, in your heart. I need this gift of life. I long to fear him. I long to live for him in reverence and I want to keep his commandments. That doesn't happen naturally. That happens spiritually. And so today, let God have his way. We're gonna sing together a a song. And as we sing, we call this our decision time. It's very simply a time for you to dedicate whatever it is that God's placed in your heart to him. We have a group of people that will be here at the front. We just call them encouragers. They're prayer partners. They're friends. 
They won't embarrass you in any way. They just simply want to take whatever problem that you bring before them, before God in prayer. They'll encourage you. They'll pray with you. They can counsel and guide you. So in just a moment as we stand and sing, I want to invite you to do something. If the need of your life today is to trust Jesus Christ and be saved, why don't you come down from wherever you are. Just slip out. Again, we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to call you out. We'll even be able to walk across the hallway to a little room, encourager's room right there, and they can pray with you in confidence and quiet and silence. If that's the need of your life, come and do that. Today, the need of your life may be to join with this church. Many of you have been going through our Starting Point series, and you understand that this is the kind of church I want to be a part of. We're a church on mission that's making disciples right here and around the world. And if that's the need of your life, join today. Same process. Just simply come and tell that encourager you want to be a part of Hardy Street. Maybe you just need prayer. If that's the need of your life, they're available for that too. Let's stand together. As we sing, you come.